Dr. Daniel Solomon is an infectious disease doctor on staff at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He went to med school at Yale, then did both residency and fellowship at the Brigham, although fellowship was combined with MGH, where he was on the HIV clinician educator track. He's actively involved in improving care at the intersection of injection drug use and infectious disease, where he integrates addiction treatment and infectious disease care to improve infection and addiction-related outcomes. He also teaches clinical reasoning at Harvard Medical School and is a course director of the Harvard ID in Primary Care CME course, giving talks on immunizations and Lyme disease. So we start off talking about the measles outbreak. After the show, he got back to me about the following. A booster isn't necessary if you received two doses, and two doses were given starting in 1989. So given that the second dose is typically given at four to six years, if you were born in 1983 or later, and your pediatrician was on top of that change, you may have gotten two doses. The main focus of the talk is Lyme disease, and it is chock full of useful information. We discuss the presentations of primary Lyme, early and disseminated Lyme, the treatments, and workup. We discuss prevention in light of the fact that we both have three-year-olds that run around outside in Lyme endemic areas. We end up discussing how the presentation of Lyme can be missed, the symptoms hard to appreciate, and the tests sometimes difficult to interpret. But he helps us parse through all that, and we end by differentiating chronic Lyme from post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, only one of which is recognized by the CDC and infectious disease community. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Daniel Solomon, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So before we get started talking about Lyme disease, uh, I thought with the recent outbreaks of measles, since we have an infectious disease doctor with us, an adult infectious disease doctor, I think it would be worthwhile to just briefly talk about that, but more specifically, recommend what the recommendations are for adults with regards to getting revaccinated or tested to see if you need to be revaccinated. So what, where are we with that? Right. So great question. I mean, it's so crazy that in 2019, we have like more than 900 cases of measles. I think most of that are in people who are have never been vaccinated. So I get a lot of curbside consultations about, hey, does this patient need a booster or more vaccine? And the answer is usually no. So the CDC says that uh, we can presume people have immunity if they were born before 1957 or if they've had documentation of two vaccines, those are MMR vaccines at any time, or if they have evidence of serologic immunity, which would be like an antibody titer, an IgG titer. I think the important thing is that a lot of folks are checking these titers and finding that they're negative. And the important piece here is that the titer is only about 80% sensitive. Um, So a lot of people actually are immune, but they don't have positive titers. So as long as we know that people have had two doses in the past, um, we say that's enough. There was a period where people were only getting about one dose um, that we were people like born in the 1980s. And if we're not really sure, it's very, very sort of low-hanging fruit 
safe to just give a booster. And I wouldn't say don't do that if you're unsure. But I would not be checking titers in folks if we know that they've had two prior vaccines. I'll have to ask my mom about that. <laughs> I don't right. know. <laughs> I'm sure she keeps great records. Yes, I don't know. She does actually, but I don't know where I don't know where that stuff would be. But I, you know, I also I'm sure I have titers from just, you know, applying for jobs and things like that. When it was for, for those well, of us you, that, when you went to oh, college or medical school, they probably got titers for you, or at least checked that you'd been vaccinated. Exactly, exactly. So that 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 information is is out there. Okay, great. Correct. So now let, let's get into Lyme disease. So now that we're into into the spring. It's the season. The reason it's called Lyme is I think it was either Old Lyme or Lyme, Connecticut. You're in Boston. I'm on Long Island, so it's right between the two of us. And I think it's a, it's a it's a great time to be discussing it. And it's turned into something controversial for reasons that we're going to get into. Really, it's something that it's it's difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to test for, and the 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 symptoms can be nebulous. So first, we're going to cover things that are not so nebulous about it. We're going to cover the things that are more straightforward about it. So if you could tell us, for those clinicians who haven't encountered Lyme disease in a while, what's, what's a quick overview of it? Um, sure. And I totally agree. I mean, now's the time to be talking about it. And maybe I could just start by saying some of the reasons I think Lyme is is challenging for folks. And I would say one is that testing is really confusing. The second, and what you've already alluded to, is that it's a multi-system disease with variable presentations, right? So if you think about aortic stenosis, it's a disease of the heart. It pretty much looks the same in all people at most stages of the disease. Lyme touches so many different systems in the body. And then some of those symptoms can be nonspecific and can have overlapping features with other infections and other tick-borne diseases. So it can be really confusing. And then I I look forward to getting into the social controversy, but sometimes it can be really hard to know where to get reliable information. Just sort of background, high-level stuff, you know, Lyme is caused by a spirochete called Borrelia burgdorferi is carried by the Ixodes tick. So we think about it as the deer tick that is endemic to the Northeast where you and I live. But we also know that that it has spread across the country and has sort of been creeping into Pennsylvania and the Midwestern states as well. And it occurs most commonly in the summer months, but we do see cases year round. So we sort of have to keep our antenna up when we live in endemic areas that people can present with Lyme disease at different stages all throughout the year. And and what are those presentations, right? There's primary, secondary, tertiary stages. So what, what are we looking for in a primary stage, primary infection? Yep. Perfect. So I can just sort of walk through each of those stages. So stage one, I, we usually refer to it as early localized disease. And I think timing is important here. So it usually occurs about 7 to 14 days after the tick bite. And the classic feature that we see is erythema migrans, and that's the target bullseye lesion that we see at the site of the tick bite. We talk about that bullseye rash, but I will say actually in practice, we more commonly just see an annular or ovoid rash. And it's usually rapidly progressive in size and and needs to get to about five centimeters to, to meet criteria. It's important because some people can get a local tick bite reaction at the site of a tick bite. And usually that's just the size of a, of a dime or a nickel and it doesn't get bigger. And I think that's an important piece for physicians to know so they can counsel patients that no, this is just like an allergic reaction to the tick bite. And it does not necessarily correlate with the erythema migrans that we think about for early localized disease. 
About a third of patients will have systemic symptoms when they have that erythema migraines rash. So this can look like the flu. Some patients uh, refer to it as the summer flu, fatigue, anorexia, headache, neck stiffness, things like that. Some people will have multiple erythema migraines rashes, but usually that's a little bit later and it's a sign of early dissemination. So I would say, you know, classic early localized disease is just the rash. And then some people, about a third of people will have systemic symptoms along with it. So is that maybe where the term migraines comes from, right? Because if I think of migraines, I think of migrating. Mm -hmm. So then we've got a rash in a couple of different places. The board exam answer for the bullseye rash, right? I wouldn't think of, bull, why, would, why would they name a bullseye rash migraines? No, I think it is. I think it's because that local rash actually pro, uh, progresses fairly rapidly from the time that it appears. So if you look at a rash on a Tuesday and it looks like it may be uh, erythema migraines and then you look at it on a Wednesday, it should be progressive. It should get bigger. Okay. Uh, and that's one of the things that I counsel folks about is if you're not sure, is this a local tick bite reaction or erythema migraines, you can just wait 24 hours, see if it expands because erythema migraines really should migrate fairly rapidly. Got it. Okay. And, and I think it's important to reiterate the fact that it doesn't need to be a bullseye. Like if it's not a bullseye, it doesn't mean that it's not Lyme disease. No. And in fact, in fact, more often it's not a bullseye. Um, bullseye is just sort of the classic appearance that we talk about, but it's not the most common appearance. Before we get on to secondary infections, let, let's say you sure. do have a patient with a tick bite, right? Or that, or you just, you just find a tick on them. What do you do in that situation? Like you're in, a, in a, you're an endemic area, you know that there's Lyme yep. disease around, your patient's been bitten by a tick, Yep. What do you do? So we first hold our patient's hands and counsel them that it's going to be okay. A lot of there's a lot of Lyme phobia in our area, probably yours as well. A tick needs to be attached for 36 hours or more to transmit Lyme disease. And this data is really hard to sort of parse, but only about 10 to 20% of tick bites with a deer tick with the Ixodes scapularis results in Lyme disease. So a lot of people would get bit by a tick and they don't get Lyme disease. So I think some patient education is important. We do recommend removing the tick as best as they can get the whole tick out. And then when we live in an endemic area, we actually recommend prophylaxis. So we would recommend a one-time dose of doxycycline, 200 milligrams, to prevent you know, any potential transmission of Lyme disease. And there's really good data that that helps. There's like an 87% decrease um, in Lyme disease after giving that single dose of prophylaxis. And is that even if you've gotten the tick off in less than 36 hours? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty liberal with that 36-hour window because it's really hard to know when the tick actually attached. So if there's any reasonable chance that it could have been on for 36 hours, I'd go ahead and give the dose of doxycycline. It's, it's you know, really safe. It's well-tolerated. And I think that the, the downsides are, are minimal. So I would say if there's a chance that it's been on for 36 hours, go ahead and give the dose. And then there's this other window that we talk about the dose needs to be given within 72 hours of the tick removal. And similarly, I'm pretty liberal with that. If it seems to fall within three days, I go ahead and give the single dose. Yeah, I guess our profession is entirely risk versus benefit. And the, the risk of, of a dose is just so remarkably it's low. So low. Yeah. I will say there are a few populations where that is not the case. So we don't give doxycycline to uh, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, and we don't give doxycycline to children under the age of eight. I don't care for children. I'm told that that actually might 
be shifting a little bit, but I'm going to stay out of those waters because it's not my area of expertise. You might want to change the way you you phrase that. I don't care for children under the age of eight. You I don't, don't care for children, you, even my own children. I have a yeah. three-year-old and a seven. I don't care for them much at all. <laughs> I don't, uh, right. I don't see them in practice. <laughs> okay. Um, I was going to save this for later, but I think it's, it's a good time to talk about it. Strategies for preventing Lyme. Actually, I have a, I have a three-year-old as well, a three-year-old and an 18-month-old. So we're in we're in similar boats, right? We're in endemic totally. area. Kids walking around the backyard. Yeah. So, 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 how do we? What are some strategies for preventing Lyme? Yeah. So, my sort of elevator pitch to to patients is to not be afraid of enjoying the great outdoors. Um, I think, as I said, there's a lot of Lyme phobia, and people say, "Should I never like go hiking?" And my answer is no. I do recommend being um, aggressive about trying to avoid tick bites. So. I, I do recommend using long sleeves, long pants when you're walking in the woods. You know, ticks usually live on the grass or on low hanging bushes and then sort of jump onto the skin on the legs and then crawl up. So if you have long pants and you tuck them into your socks, that actually sort of decreases the opportunity for ticks to jump onto the body. And then actually after the activity, you have opportunity before that 36 hour window sort of hits. I, I recommend as soon as you come inside, taking off your clothes, throw them in the dryer for about 10 minutes, and that high heat will actually kill any of the ticks that might be on your clothing. And if you take a shower fairly quickly after coming inside, that can actually wash any ticks that are still crawling on the body. They can just wash them off. For kids, I do recommend doing tick checks in the evening, especially when they've been playing outside. Um, and I'm, I'm very, pro, I'm like very liberal with DEET and insect repellent. I think it's really helpful when trying to prevent tick bites. It's always interesting to hear how physicians take care of their own kids, right? With regards to, you know, this is what I recommend to my patients. I mean, ultimately, I think the, the, they're very similar. But I think it's it's a good reflection on how seriously you do take this disease that, you know, enjoy the great outdoors. But so but but really, you, you'll take their clothes off and your clothes off after coming in from outside and put it in the dryer for 10 minutes. When do, when do you really do that? Not if we're just playing in the yard. But if we've been out hiking, you know, in the Blue Hills, which is just down the street, I would recommend doing that because the ticks don't bite right away. They, you know, they crawl around on the body. They like to seek out like dark areas like the back of your knee or the groin. And I think there is a window where you can just sort of get it off the body before they have an opportunity to bite. So, you know, it, it can be within a couple of hours. It doesn't need to be an emergency. And like I said, I did, my bias is coming through here. Like I try not to be overly worried about it, but I do think there are precautions we can take to decrease risk. So I totally endorse going out, playing, go hiking, but at the same time, knowing that those are risk, risky behaviors and, you know, what, what can we do to decrease the risk? Great. So wasn't there a vaccine at some point for Lyme disease? Yeah, there was. And it sounds like we're of the same generation. So never when we were in practice. Um, I think the vaccine came out in the late 90s. There were some limitations to the vaccine. So I think there had to be three doses. And that's that's like not the easiest thing to do when you're in primary care practice um, to get people to come back. And even at three doses, the effectiveness, I think, was only about 70 or 80 percent. So yeah, it worked. It was it was useful. And then there was some controversy around it. There was some concern that the vaccine was actually causing arthritis, a reactive arthritis. Um, we'll get to this, but late disseminated disease, the hallmark feature is monoarthritis. And they started to see that in folks who had gotten the vaccine. 
subsequent studies show that there's actually no signal at all. This was just sort of something people were worried about, but was not associated with arthritis. But there were a bunch of lawsuits. And because there was low vaccine uptake and a bunch of controversy around it, it got pulled from the market, I think, in the early 2000s, 2001 or 2002. Interesting. So here we have a vaccine that could have helped decrease the rate of Lyme disease, but because the lawsuits and controversy and it ended up not being financially worthwhile for the That's exactly company right. that developed it. Yeah, exactly right. And it, like I said, it wasn't a perfect vaccine. The effectiveness yeah. was low at three doses, but yeah, it was better than what we have now, which is nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a shame how that works, but that's the reality of the situation. You know, I think with, with, we're not, we're not going to get into the vaccine controversy, but I think with regards to that, a lot of what people use to, to justify that vaccines cause harm is they use the outcomes of lawsuits, but lawsuits are decided by juries that are not scientifically trained. So you can't really use a lawsuit in this to, to prove a point in that regard. Yeah, exactly right. And if you look at the clinical data, the, the signal's not there. Um, but, you know, I think public opinion is heavily driven by, you know, media attention and lawsuits. Yeah, unfortunately. All right, well, let's, let's get back to, uh, to Lyme. So, uh, secondary and tertiary, tertiary infections. What are we going to see in those? Sure. So secondary, um, the, we call that stage two or early disseminated disease. And there, I think about the organ systems that are involved, and there are two major organ systems that can be involved in early disseminated disease. The first is the CNS. Uh, Lyme meningitis is the most common manifestation, um, and that is just looks like a meningitis, typically a stiff neck, headache, with systemic symptoms. Patients can also get a cranial nerve palsy. So we see patients with a Bell's palsy. That's a CNS manifestation of Lyme. And then some patients can get a peripheral reticulopathy. Um, that's more commonly seen in some of the strains of Borrelia that, um, that are present in Europe, but we do see it here as well. So the CNS is one system. The other system is the cardiovascular system, and this is where we see AV block is the most common manifestation of, of secondary or early disseminated Lyme disease. And that's picked up usually with an EKG. Some patients may have symptoms associated with complete heart block if it gets severe. And what about tertiary? What are we seeing in tertiary? Um, the, so late disseminated. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say about early disseminated disease, the timing is important. So usually that's about, I would say about one month or four weeks after the tick bite. And then most people who are not treated just get better by themselves. And I will say this now, and I'll probably say it again. If you get treated at early localized disease or early disseminated disease, you are not at risk for progressing to the later manifestations. So late disseminated disease, that's stage three, typically seen months after the initial tick bite. Um, I usually think about somewhere between three to nine months, but we have seen patients that present after a year or longer than a year. And the most common manifestation is a, is a monoarthritis of the, of the large joint. And the classic is like the knee or the hip. I don't know why there's like a, seems to be a tropism for the lower extremity, but, but that's most commonly what we see. It's like a, one knee or one hip. Gravity. Must yeah, gravity. maybe gravity, right, <laughs> exactly. The spirochetes just fall down. Arthritis is by far the most common thing. The more challenging thing that we sometimes see is, is encephalopathy. So people say, oh, I just, I can't focus, I can't concentrate. 
Um, and that can be associated with low energy. These are some of the nonspecific symptoms that, that I mentioned. And it's really hard to tease apart because so many things can cause those symptoms, but disseminated disease can be one of those things. So in patients who have sort of these low-level cognitive issues, some fatigue, if they have a positive Lyme test and they haven't been treated before, um, it could be a manifestation of, of late disseminated disease. And, and I think this is where we get into that chronic Lyme controversy because, you know, you come, if the patient has this encephalopathy, maybe they also have a monoarthritis for other reasons. And, you know, those, 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 those patients, it's just a very common symptom of having difficulty concentrating. I mean, how many, if you were to just take a survey of people in the United States, what would be the rate of people that say, I'm having difficulty concentrating? Right. That's exactly so, right. At some point during their like, you know, busy days and busy lives. Exactly yeah. right. And and a joint that hurts, right? So and you a joint that hurts, two, right. Take those two symptoms together and and now you've got a huge swath of the population. And I think this is but but when you have a patient with those symptoms, it could be secondary to Lyme disease. So it'd be it'd be very easy to dismiss those symptoms. But at the same time, should those patients with those more nebulous symptoms be tested for Lyme? Like, how do we parse through um, who gets tested and who doesn't? Because there's positives, right? Yeah, I I think that the that the joint manifestation is a little bit easier to talk about because um, it's a very there's a there are prototypical features to the arthritis that we see. Typically, it's an inflammatory arthritis. If you do a arthrocentesis, usually we see like somewhere between twenty to forty thousand white blood cells. That's not, you know, it's going to look different than you know osteoarthritis, for example. Usually, there's a big joint diffusion, and sometimes you can actually get a PCR on the synovial fluid to turn positive, and then we can really have a definitive diagnosis. I think the cognitive issues are the cognitive symptoms we were talking about are more challenging because certainly patients can have cognitive issues and a positive Lyme test, but whether or not those two things are related is a very hard thing to parse. And I think oftentimes we are stuck with patients who have real symptoms uh, and a positive test saying, well, I think we're obligated to treat the, the infection if they've never been treated before. Just counseling patients that you may not see an improvement in symptoms if you're treated. Well, you, you were saying for secondary, sorry, was it acute disseminated? Early disseminated, yeah. Early, early disseminated Lyme that uh, they, it, clear, it can clear spontaneously, right? Well, the symptoms will. The symptoms go away after a period of time without Does treatment that in that the in body everyone. has cleared the infection? Or it, it not really necessarily. Not okay. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily. Some patients will be exposed to Lyme disease or the Borrelia spirochete and never, ever get symptoms and then they're fine. So here's one of the interesting things about the spirochete. Um, it actually has no virulence factor, so it doesn't cause direct damage to the body. The, the, the symptoms are secondary to immune activation. So it's the body noticing that the spirochete is there causing inflammation at the sites of disease. So there are some people who they never get their immune system activated, they never have severe symptoms or symptoms at all, and then the spirochete goes away. People, some people do have immune activation, they have symptoms, and um, and some people progress to later forms of the disease if they're not treated. Got it. Okay. So what? Aside from you, you mentioned aspirating the joint, aspirating the synovial fluid. Yep. What 
what other tests are there for, for Lyme disease and how do we interpret them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an area of controversy as well, but I think it's a really important point. So for early, and and it differs depending on the stage of Lyme disease. So for early localized disease, and here we're just talking about the rash, the test that we use um, for diagnosis of Lyme disease is, is serologies. It's an antibody. And early in disease, patients usually have not created those antibodies yet. So tests are typically negative when people present with the erythema migraines rash. So we strongly advise, do not send the test, just treat empirically if someone comes in in an endemic area with symptoms that are consistent with early localized disease. So, you know, you have a patient coming in in July, they've got an ovoid rash, they were hiking over the weekend, there, there's no test that's going to allow me to feel comfortable not treating that. And I would just say treat empirically, no need to check serologies there. I would, I would even argue not no need, don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be, yeah, the test is going to be misleading, right? And then, the and test then is going to be misleading. You're going to be tempted to not treat. So, so and, and, and it takes time to come back and we're losing opportunity for initiating treatment right up front. So absolutely right, Brad. I would say, you know, if you think that this could be Lyme disease, we're talking about risks and benefits, just treat. And treatment is easy. It's, it's doxycycline, 100 milligrams for, you know, 10 to 21 days. The, the duration actually doesn't matter that much. Um, 10 days is usually enough for people who don't have systemic symptoms. And, sorry, you covered doxycycline. Let's say this patient has a doxycycline allergy. What's our what's our second line? So amoxicillin um, is usually what we use, and then the duration is typically the same. So amoxicillin or one of the cephalosporins would be reasonable as well. Usually, we can get away with doxy or amoxicillin as first line therapy. Got it. Okay. If none of those are an option because you know amoxicillin allergies are so are so common. That's when I think you get an infectious disease consult, right? Because at that point, it's gotten, it's gotten a little more complicated, especially yeah, with the cross-reactivity between penicillin and cephalosporins. Although that being said, most of those, uh, many of those allergies are not even real allergies. So it might even be worthwhile to send that patient to get allergy tested, find out so if they're that's exactly right. yeah. real, and then find out most of the time it's not real. And then- uh, <laughs> You got it. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so doxycycline, amoxicillin, cefuroxime, if, you know, if, if they're purportedly allergic to all of those things, we like to see those folks. Um, and, and most of the work we do is exonerating the allergy rather than coming up with alternative antibiotics. Got it. Okay. You have the erythema migrans, you've caught it, you've treated it. Um, so then at what point does the serology uh, become positive? At what point does the IgM become elevated? How long does the IgM become elevated? Because you might have someone that was treated for uh, Lyme disease in the past, right? We're in an endemic area. You can get bitten yep. more months. So yep, yep, first, yep. how long does the IgM stay elevated? And then, uh, you know, what about how do we use the IgG in that situation? Sure, sure. So now we're talking about someone in whom we think they have either early or, um, early disseminated disease or late disseminated disease. Those are the cases in which we're sending the test. And I will say that the testing is a two-step algorithm. The first step is an ELISA test, um, and it is it is really sensitive for people with early disseminated or late disseminated disease. By four weeks after the tick exposure, that should be positive. And if it's positive, it will reflex or it should reflex if it's ordered correctly to a Western blot. And the Western blot looks for different proteins that are associated with antibodies to Borrelia. 
and you can get an IgM Western blot and an IgG Western blot. And here's where it gets tricky. Um, so none of those single antibodies or single proteins is specific to the bacteria. So basically, there are some criteria that are um, endorsed by the CDC and the IDSA to say there are a specific number of bands that we need to see on the Western blot to call that a positive test. So two or greater IgM bands or five or greater IgG bands would be a positive test. So, you know, if you're looking at the Western blot and you only see one IgG band, I would say most people have one IgG band because there's a lot of cross-reactivity. So you really need to have this sort of constellation of positive findings um, on, on the Western blot for it to be positive. So is this where some of the controversy comes in? Because someone will be sent for these tests because they have some of the more generalized symptoms of Lyme, maybe they're an endemic area, maybe they're not, and they end up with a single band. Are there people, because now we're getting into the controversy a little bit, are there people out there that are interpreting the single band as a positive test? So I would say, so yes, so yes. Um, I think both, both there are some providers and a lot of patients who will come to me and say, what are you talking about? I don't have Lyme disease. This test says I have a positive test, right? I, why do I have this, um, this positive band on my Western blot? And it's tricky. I think it's tricky for, for patients to, to explain, you know, you don't have Lyme disease because this, you know, you need more than one band on your Western blot. So that is one reason that we have some controversy here, but there, there's more to it than that. There are actually other tests that are employed that are not FDA approved that are sort of designed for sensitivity that um, combine a whole bunch of different tests, including, you know, IgM antibodies, which should go away by four to eight weeks after exposure. And one that I see a lot in practice is called Igenix. People can sort of send their blood out to California, get this highly sensitive Lyme test that's designed for sensitivity, and they're told they have Lyme, and then they come to me to help interpret that. So I would say there, there are two issues here. One is misinterpreting the test that, that is actually pretty good, which is our, our current algorithm. And then the other issue is, is the, the use of these non-FDA approved, super sensitive tests that are really designed to pick up positives that may not actually reflect true positives. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they're, they're, they're false positives, essentially. They're, um, they are false positives. Like, correct. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's, it's a, it's like, like a screening test, right? Like the yeah, school, right, right. Your nose and throat doctor, right? I see a lot of school hearing tests. They come to see me, they get an audiogram by an audiologist in a soundproof booth. And as it turns out, their test was totally fine. Well, why is it designed that way? Well, it's by design so that you don't miss any kids. You'd rather have a lot of false positives than any false negatives. Now you're missing a kid with hearing loss and they're not going to get the services that they need. But this is so now your kids in school in the, that they don't have, that's not a specific test, right? It's a, it's a sensitive yeah. test as a screening test. And then they're sent to you. Exactly right. Yeah. So this is doing the same thing, but now they're being sent to you think, thinking that they have a test that they don't have. And many of these patients have very real symptoms and they're trying to figure out where they're coming from. And it sounds like these labs almost prey on this population, right? In order to, that, that's how they... That's how they keep their lights on. That's how they turn their profits. So I think that's exactly right. I, you know, I'm, 
I would suspect there are people who really think that the IDSA and the CDC have it wrong and they're doing a great service by offering these more sensitive tests that will help people arrive at diagnoses and treatment courses that may help their symptoms. So oh, there yeah. may be, you know, they wouldn't the best be able of intention. Exactly. They wouldn't, I don't think they'd be able to sleep at night if they thought that they were doing something nefarious. I think they're genuinely, they genuinely believe that they're providing a service. And, and this is... Maybe. This, I, giving them the benefit of the doubt, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I think it does do a disservice for a number of reasons. I think it's really, really confusing to patients. And it's hard for patients, it's hard for doctors, but it's hard for patients to know where to get reliable information. And I think one of the things as an ID doctor... Um, that I can do is be a really good, I think I said this to you in an email, but be a good steward of information. What, how do we really understand the literature that's out there? Help me understand how the testing works. So we don't actually need these super, super sensitive screening tests. The ELISA screening test that we use is really sensitive as long as it's used appropriately, right? It's not sensitive for early localized disease because it hasn't turned positive yet. But as long as you wait long enough and you're using it in someone who you are wondering if they have early disseminated or late disseminated disease, that's a really sensitive test. So we don't need these sort of super sensitive tests to help us in clinical practice. The other thing that I would say about um, the Western blot is to be really careful about interpreting a positive IgM Western blot. IgMs are just prone to cross-reactivity. And this is not specific to Lyme disease. We see this across the board in infectious diseases, you know, herpes antibodies, EBV antibodies, all these IgM tests can cross-react with one another. So when someone comes in with potentially early disseminated or late disseminated disease, and they only have IgM bands on their Western blot and no IgG bands, I'm highly skeptical of that test, and, I, and I'm wondering about a cross-reactive process um, because really people should have IgG-positive bands by the time um, they have the disseminated symptoms. So that's another test that has a high sensitivity, but I guess lack of specificity. Correct. Yeah. High sensitivity, high rate of false positivity. Oh, I did not. I had, <laughs> yeah, I know. We got to draw trouble. the two by two grid together. Hey, yeah, right. In that, in that class. Um, uh, is there is there cross reactivity? There's another there's another famous spirochete out there, right? That uh, syphilis. Syphilis, yes. Is so that is the there one? Yeah. With with syphilis, you can. Uh, but but really, that's for the the screening test and the IgM antibodies. The IgG, there's less cross reactivity there. But again, you know, it, it, it's the cross reactivity of the antibody, not of the bacteria. So, you know, it could be syphilis, but as I said, it could be herpes, it could be HIV, you know, a lot of things can actually cross-react with that assay. Um, so just the fact that they're both spirochetes, I don't think that there's any, I don't think it's special in any way. Okay. The syphilis testing is is interesting. There's a phenomenon that we see in ENT called sudden sensor neural hearing loss, where people just lose their hearing. It could be a completely deaf ear, it could be a mild hearing loss, and we used to send these panels of labs to try and figure out where it was coming from. And one of the tests that, that you would test for was syphilis. So you'd be testing someone who like hasn't been sexually active for years for 
neurosyphilis as possibly the cause. Right, and right. some of them would be like, I found it. I found mm-hmm. someone that really has, and I'm sure that, that some of those were just, were just, we get those consults so often. And, and, you know, sometimes it's true that they actually did get exposed 50 years ago and they were never treated, but oftentimes that's a, you know, it's a false positive treponemal antibody test. And, uh, you know, the question for us is always, do we need to do the LP? And the answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I wonder with, with Lyme disease, um, also with, with measles, if there's, there's a bit of a branding problem on the, on the physician side, right? Like if, if for Lyme disease, since it's both a spirochete, if, if we were calling it tick syphilis, as opposed to Lyme disease, maybe people wouldn't be so quick to think that they have want to have that disease (laughs) like just attach a little stigma to it to make it less appealing (laughs) exactly like with with measles people it it doesn't sound you know it's measly it's measly it doesn't it sounds pretty benign if we started referring to it like rat bite fever right yeah that sounds horrible. Yeah, I spend my life like trying to destigmatize diseases like, you know, opioid use disorder and HIV. So I don't think I can endorse like uh, it, <laughs> trying to stigmatize a disease so people like stay away from it. But it's an All idea. Right, I'll excellent. give it to you. You're making, you know, that's an, that's, a, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Okay. Um, um, so can I, let, let me say this about Lyme testing. So there are, there are pitfalls. It's, it, there, there are challenges in interpreting Lyme disease testing. I actually think the current Lyme disease testing we have is good for making a diagnosis of a first episode of Lyme disease if it's used appropriately. I think the major pitfall of our current Lyme testing is that if someone's been exposed and they develop IgG antibodies, some people never revert back to having negative antibodies, but it does not confer immunity. So you can definitely get reinfected with Lyme disease, and then testing becomes really challenging to interpret because is the positive test due to the old infection or a possible new infection? Can you count the number of bands? And and this is where things get really tricky, especially when you live in an endemic area where, I don't know, I've probably been exposed to Lyme disease. So I think that's the major limitation in people who have had prior episodes of Lyme disease trying to interpret those tests. But for a first episode, our testing's pretty good. Yeah, I think in that situation, you definitely need to be sending that patient to consult with an infectious disease doctor with experience in, in Lyme. That just sounds so such a such a challenging thing to be able to figure out if there's if there's a reinfection. You've got to parse through the symptoms and it, it just seems fraught with peril. We're def- working in a lot of like in a huge gray space here and weighing risks and benefits. And yeah, I think that's that that's one of the major challenges that we face. Some of the other controversy comes from post-Lyme disease syndrome. And the, I think it's important to differentiate chronic Lyme, which is the, the belief that the infection was never cleared and adequately treated from post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, right? So I want to explore this for a bit because this is where patients feel like they're not being heard, they're not being understood, they're, they're not being taken seriously. And part of that comes from the fact that Post-Lyme disease syndrome is is real, correct? Absolutely correct. And I can't be more clear about that. That and, and and I think I sort of when I give my talks on Lyme disease, I include post-treatment Lyme syndrome as one of the stages of Lyme disease. Because some patients really do have persistent symptoms after completing appropriate treatment. And again, these symptoms are really nonspecific. We're thinking about fatigue, myalgias, arthralgias 
cognitive slowing, headaches, mood problems, depression, anxiety, and they can be really, really debilitating. Like some people have to take time off of work. It can have a huge impact on people's lives. And I can't be more clear that this is a real syndrome and it's, and it's really challenging for patients who, who suffer from it. I will say that anecdotally, there's an area under the curve phenomenon here. So patients who are sickest at the beginning for the longest duration of time before getting treated are the patients who seem to have the, the longest recovery. So, you know, I saw a patient who had, um, she had fevers for like a week and neck stiffness. And, you know, it was sort of missed the diagnosis for, for a long period of time before she got treated. And then months later, she was sort of the classic person who's still having issues getting back to work and getting her energy up. So it can be debilitating. It's real. But the other important thing is that we really don't believe it's due to persistent infection. And I think this is where a big piece of the controversy comes up. So if we sort of take a step back and think about chronic Lyme disease, is now a good time to do that? Well, I just, I just want to mention, I think it's worth mm-hmm. mentioning that patient's story one more time to, so that it's, doctors can realize where these patients are coming from, right? So this was a patient with neck stiffness, I mean, maybe the erythema migraines might have been in a place like the back of her knee where she, you know, it was difficult to see mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the encephalopathy, right? The brain fog, maybe some, some, some joint pain. And so, you know, she, you go to, you go to your doctor and you're not able to put that together because those symptoms are so nebulous that you don't think Lyme per se. So then you, you, you've, miss the diagnosis with the best of intentions, and the patient continues to suffer. And, and this is a patient that then ends up having or being more likely to have post-Lyme syndrome where you end up with the chronic fatigue of, among other, other symptoms. So the patients that are coming in thinking that they might have it, it's not without good reason that they, that they think this, right? Because it does get missed. It's hard to diagnose. The symptoms are nebulous. And and can last and can end up being devastating. So and and initially, the history of post treatment Lyme disease syndrome was that these patients weren't believed to have some some like real phenomenon that now has has a name um, and a description to go along with it. So these were patients whose maybe they weren't dismissed, but at least they felt like their their symptoms were being dismissed. So this sure. this is a situation where the, the the controversy of you know patients not feeling like they're being taken seriously and listened to and heard is really, it's in some ways deserved because it's hard to diagnose. And sometimes it's straightforward, right? You got the tick bite, you got the, the, the large rash, you've, you treat it and you're fine. But the, you know, there will be patients that, that are missed and there will be patients that, that are having a lot of suffering. And it's important to, to keep that in mind, especially, right? This is a podcast, this is out there, this is on social media. When you're interacting with with these patients, it's it's really important to to keep it framed in the perspective of someone that that could have been through all of that. Right, and I think you made two important points there. The first is that sometimes there's a delay to diagnosis because the symptoms can be nonspecific, and maybe the rash is hiding, for example, and maybe this is uh, an area where we don't see a lot of Lyme disease. And a, and a delay in diagnosis can really have an impact on a patient's recovery. So that's point number one. And the second is that sort of the patients who present after being treated with, you know, these persistent symptoms of fatigue and brain slowing, brain fog, those are real symptoms. Um, and, and I can't say that, en- that enough. 
you know, the more I validate patient symptoms, I think the more cared for they feel. Now, a couple additional points is that those symptoms of post-treatment Lyme disease are nonspecific and can be caused by other true organic things, right? Other diseases. And before arriving at a diagnosis of post-treatment Lyme disease, I think it's really important to do a really thorough workup that would include testing for other tick-borne diseases like anaplasma, like babesia, testing for hormonal things like TSH, testosterone, and doing a really good internist's workup of a patient with chronic fatigue and and systemic symptoms before arriving at this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Because, you know, sometimes we miss things just saying, oh, yeah, 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 it's the Lyme um, and and you're going to get better. And the chronic Lyme is the thought that that there is a persistent infection. So there are physicians out there, again, as we discussed, with the best of intentions, thinking that they're helping this patient population where there there is genuine suffering going on. And so they're treated with long-term antibiotics. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. So chronic Lyme, I think people mean different things when they say chronic Lyme. I think one thing that people mean is uh, you know, someone comes in with nonspecific symptoms, their Lyme testing is negative, but they're called that they, they, they're told they have Lyme anyway. Um, and this is people, you know, a lot of the time they're getting these super sensitive Lyme tests that don't correlate with what's FDA approved. This is, this is really problematic because those are real symptoms too, but they have nothing to do with Lyme disease. If the Lyme testing is negative, it really means that the symptoms are due to something other than Lyme disease. So that's one category. The other category is just what we've been talking about. People who come in with persistent symptoms after treatment, being told that those symptoms can be attributed to ongoing infection that hasn't been eradicated. And that's where I think it's really problematic because uh, you know people end up on these long courses of antibiotics that have a ton of side effects. A lot of the time, they end up with a PIC line, um, so PIC-associated complications, antimicrobial resistance. Um, I just, you know, we get into sort of, sort of tall grass very quickly there. It's really complicated because if you sort of go on the internet, you will find this deep pseudo literature of, you know, chronic infections. You can go on YouTube and see these videos of cyst formation that are they're not. It's not a real thing. There's not a latent form of Lyme disease that hides out as far as we know. There was one paper that was published in PLOS One, um, so a good good scientific journal back in 2012, that a lot of people turn to when they say, yep, no, persistence of, inf- persistence of infection is real. Um, and I think it's worth knowing about that study because people will quote it, and I think this is where a lot of the controversy arises from. So some researchers took um, some monkeys and they injected them with Borrelia, and then they treated them with doxycycline to say, okay, we gave you Lyme disease, we treated you for Lyme disease, and then they did a whole bunch of testing to see if they could isolate any persistent infection. Um, And one of the techniques they used is something called xenodiagnosis. So they would take a tick and allow that tick to feed on the monkey, Um, and they did a whole bunch of testing on that tick to see if they could isolate Borrelia from the tick, right? They shouldn't be able to. If we were, if we actually eradicated the infection, and the results were a little bit problematic because they were able to do PCR and find some DNA fragments of Borrelia when they like ground up the ticks, and then if they they dissected the ticks and with immunofluorescence they were able to find fragments of Borrelia. So a lot of people turn to that and say, "Look, there is persistence of the infection." 
does that make sense? And I can sort of explain why, why I, I don't agree with that. But before I move on, does, does my description of that study make sense? Yeah, that was very clear. Okay. So a lot of people turn to that and say, look, there's persistence of infection, but none of the organisms that they were able to identify within the tick are viable organisms. So these are just fragments of the Borrelia that are no longer active. The same way when we get treated for a Staph aureus infection or strep, you know, they're probably fragments of the bacteria that persist that do not reflect, you know, persistent infection. So we have never, ever isolated viable organisms from humans or non-human subjects who have been appropriately treated with antibiotics targeted against Lyme disease. And, and the more important thing, I would say, is that there have been large-scale, NIH-funded, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials that look at, for these patients who have persistent symptoms, if we randomize them to be on long-term antibiotics or no antibiotics, what do their outcomes look like? And there's no difference between the groups. So even if we were able to identify persistent organisms, you know, additional antibiotics don't seem to help folks. And they certainly put people at increased risk for complications. So my takeaway from all this is that, you know, the most important thing to do, number one, is to sort of validate patient symptoms, that the, the syndrome is real. Patients have real debilitating fatigue, brain fog, all those things. But to counsel them that additional antibiotics are not going to help, and we've proven that many times over, and that to the best of our scientific medical knowledge, there isn't persistence of infection in the patients, that the, that the persistent symptoms are post-infectious, that they're part of the recovery period. And, and most people do get better, though the, the, the recovery can be sluggish. Would a valid analogy be getting strep throat, getting rheumatic fever, and then getting rheumatic heart disease? So now you have a throat infection that has led to mm -hmm. a heart disease that will require cardiac surgery. You can kind of draw that parallel for the patient to explain to them that you had this this infection that's now gone, but because of your body's reaction to that infection, it has now affected your brain. Because if you tell them, listen, I, I don't, um, you don't have the infection anymore, and I know you feel tired, but here's this antidepressant, right? I think in that situation, they're going to, they're, they're going to feel dismissed, right? They're going to feel like they're not taken seriously. So, so how do you actually just, just answer it that way, rather, how do you then explain it to your patients without an empathetic way that, that allows them to feel validated in their symptoms, that you're taking them seriously, and then you're, you're treating them in a, in a genuine way. Yeah, yeah. So the, I'll just respond to the rheumatic heart disease point first, which is, I think it's a fair analogy, except rheumatic heart disease is better understood than post-treatment Lyme disease. I think there's an understanding that there's a post-infectious autoimmune syndrome that causes inflammation of the heart valve that causes degradation. We can't really point to the pathogenesis yet in post-treatment Lyme disease. It's still poorly understood like why these symptoms persist. But I think the analogy works in that, you know, both syndromes are caused by post-infectious changes, not by active ongoing infection. So, you know, my approach um, to, to patients who come in with post-treatment Lyme disease is to, to, number one, be really, really thorough and rigorous about ruling out alternative causes of their symptoms for two reasons. Number one, we, we find things that have been missed when we have a long time to sort of think and, and sit with patients and do a lot of lab testing. And number two, it allows me the opportunity to show patients what they don't have. 
Um, so look, you don't have HIV, your inflammatory markers are normal, you don't have rheumatoid arthritis. So look, we've sort of looked under each of these stones and, and everything has come back negative thus far. That's number one. Number two, you know, as we've talked about a million times already, just validating that the syndrome is real. And if I have the opportunity to counsel them when they get first diagnosed with Lyme disease, I would, I would be really, really thoughtful about counseling patients that this may take a long time to recover because that anticipatory guidance, it's sort of an expectation setting that is really helpful for people who have a long tail of recovery. And sometimes I wish I had the opportunity to go back when they were first diagnosed and say, hey, you're going to get better from this, but just anticipate three to six months before you're back to yourself. So, you know, a lot of validation and um, anticipatory guidance. And then I, you know, I really try to focus with folks on, on function. Like, you know, they come to me, they say, I can't work, I can't exercise, and I, I can't focus. So I think about saying, listen, we, we don't have antibiotics to treat any of those things, but we can do targeted interventions um, in order to help you function better. So for the physical symptoms, we can think about physical therapy with graded exercise programs. Some people benefit from aquatic therapy. For the cognitive piece, um, I've, I've utilized cognitive retraining programs um, like people with uh, traumatic brain injury use. We have a, a center over at MGH that will do these cognitive exercises with folks that help them retrain their brain and you know, improve some of their focus. For people in whom pain management is a symptom, I, I try to use a multimodal approach using NSAIDs and Tylenol. Gabapentin can be really helpful in people who have peripheral neuropathy. And then other medications that I've found useful are, um, especially for people who have concentrating, the short-term use of a stimulant like Ritalin or Adderall can be useful in order to aid people in their recovery. If, you know, like, I can't get back to work is their major, major complaint. And then, you know, after I've sort of done all of that, I do try to bite off the mood disorder piece. I think people who have post-treatment Lyme disease oftentimes do present with significant depression possibly due to direct effect, neurologic effect of, you know, what's going on in the brain and, and, and possibly due to sort of trying to come to terms with their new limitation. And treatment of that mood disorder can be really helpful in conjunction with all the other things we talk about. So sometimes antidepressants help, sometimes talk therapy, but I try to make it like this multidisciplinary, multimodal approach to helping them function better and set realistic expectations about sort of the duration of recovery. That, that all sounds like a lot of work. So it would be very tempting to just to try uh, from, from a patient perspective to just find someone on the oh, internet. Wouldn't it be right? easier if there was just an antibiotic? <laughs> like exactly. if I could just get better with an antibiotic, exactly. that'd be great. Because that just sounds, that um, sounds, all that sounds so labor intensive, but, but in the end, the most effective. I think that's where people are going to sort of have a better understanding of what's causing their symptoms and more realistic expectations about what the trajectory of their recovery will look like. You're absolutely right, though. That takes time and that takes resources, right? So I'm saying all these things. I don't do the aquatic therapy. I don't do the physical therapy. So it really takes, you know, having those resources available in the community to assist them with those functional improvements. And it takes time, you know, my visits are long and oftentimes that's not possible in primary care. So, you know, I think a lot of infectious disease doctors sort of roll their eyes or get heart sink when they see a patient with Lyme disease on their schedule. But I, I think we can provide a lot of value in terms of the education that we provide to patients and sort of connecting them with the right multidisciplinary care. I've found that the more 
complicated patients in the end end up being my my biggest advocates. So when I was growing my practice, those patients that ended up being the most labor intensive that ended up causing me to get backed up on my schedule and increasing the wait time, those patients were the ones that then turned turned to their friends and you know when they when they had good outcomes because maybe they had been dismissed previously or, or hadn't been given the time. So I think that is that is that is always 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 time well spent. Well, speaking of time, I, I think well that's spent, right. Let me just say one more thing. You know, I, I do counsel patients, so I will say that it. I agree with you. A lot of patients leave saying like this is this has been so helpful. You know, and the education is care, right? Plenty of patients, I, you know, I've had patients who, who storm out and they're really angry because it's not what they wanted to hear. But what I do counsel patients about is that if you look hard enough, you will find doctors to put you on long courses of antibiotics. And I just caution patients that that's out there because if I don't, then they'll find this on the internet and then they'll question whether what I told them is real or not. So I think some of that, you know, education is important as well. Yeah, I find that sometimes, you know, I'll see a patient with thrush and uh, tell them that they have candida. And, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I usually make sure to make the distinction between candida and candida, which is a, you know, the, the patient has a disseminated fungal infection, basically, you know, fungemia, which we only see in the most immunosuppressed patients. So yeah, there's, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of rabbit holes out there that are easy for patients to fall into. And it's, it, the onus is on us to, to try to prevent that. So Daniel Solomon, thank you so much for your time. This was extremely educational, extremely helpful, and I will be sure to be tossing my kids' clothes in the dryer. <laughs> in the dryer. Get them in the shower, do your tick checks. Get them in the shower, exactly, after, after they've been outside for a long time. So really, I really appreciate it and uh, very informative. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.